Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's January the 10th, 1929, in Southampton, England. An upstairs window of the Royal Exchange Pub on Grove Street opens, and a man climbs out onto a flat roof. This is Henry Passmore, newly appointed agent for the Wolfhead Oil Company in Southampton. Henry has a problem. He can't get into his company's premises, a garage storeroom next to the pub. The outer gate is locked, and he doesn't have a key. Henry's plan is to drop down into the yard from the pub roof. As he clambers across the roof, he can't help thinking this is not the best way to start his first day, being forced to break into his own place of work. Now, earlier that morning, he'd gone to the previous agent's house to pick up the keys, but there was no sign of him, or of Mr. Vivian Messeter, Henry's predecessor. Henry lowers himself down, dropping the last few feet to the ground. He looks around the outside of the garage, his first impressions are not favorable. On this bleak January day, the place has an abandoned air. The windows are grimy. One of them is broken. The garage doors are padlocked. Henry cuts the chain with a pair of bolt cutters that he brought along just in case. Stepping inside the gloomy storeroom, he finds himself surrounded by oil drums and storage crates. The garage also contains a red Morris Oxford car. With its flat-nosed hood and bug-eyed headlights, the car is typical of the era. We call it vintage today, but in 1929, it's cool. It's a modern sports car. Henry breathes in the acrid smell of oil. There's something else in the air. Something rotten. It hits him like a punch in the throat. As he moves towards the source of this horrible stench, Henry's skin begins to crawl. What was that he saw scurrying away out of the corner of his eye? Rats? Henry swallows down his disgust and lowers his gaze. There, laid out on the cold, hard concrete floor of the garage, tucked away in a gap between two stacks of boxes, is the body of a man. The dead man's lying face up. Henry's never met the previous agent, so he has no way of knowing if this is him. But then again, even the man's closest friend would be hard pressed to recognize him now. Henry's no expert. This is the first corpse he's ever found. But judging by the eye-watering smell, the body must have been there for quite some time. Henry notices a small circular hole in the middle of the man's forehead. To his untrained eye, it looks like he's been shot. Henry's seen enough. He runs out of the property, shouting for the police at the top of his lungs. In no time at all, 
the Southampton police are on the scene, led by the chief constable himself. As he looks around the garage, Hampshire's top policeman reaches a decision. This is too big for the local force. We're going to need help. Help from the best detectives in the country. Later that day, he sends an urgent telegram to Scotland Yard. A case of murder has occurred here. A man has been found shot, dead in a room, the door of which was padlocked. Will you please send an officer down to investigate the matter? The man who will answer that call is Detective Chief Inspector John Prothero. Softly spoken and methodical, Prothero is an old-school detective with a meticulous eye for detail, as well as the ability to make inspired deductive leaps. It'll take more than that to catch this killer. My name is Mark Dotson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we'll investigate a case from 1929. The crime is murder. The detective is one of Scotland Yard's finest, Detective Chief Inspector John Prothero, known to his colleagues as Gentleman John. Prothero's convinced he knows who killed Vivian Messeter and left his body in a Southampton garage. The problem is, he doesn't have the evidence to prove it. Then, one day, a ray of sunlight shows him the way. From Noiser, this is A Trick of the Light. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Let's rewind to early November, 1928. That was when the police were first notified of the disappearance of a 57-year-old man called Vivian Messeter, the Southampton agent for the Wolfhead Oil Company. By all accounts, Messeter was a reliable manager, but he suddenly seems to have up and vanished. Messeter's landlord, an ex-policeman called Mr. Parrott, was the one who raised the alarm. His old colleagues on the force investigated but found no trace of the missing man. Everything seemed secure at the Wolfhead garage. No sign of a break-in or trouble of any kind. The police weren't able to gain access to the garage, so they smashed a window and peered inside with a candle. It was then that they saw Messiter's car, the Red Morris Oxford. It may seem odd now, but everyone just kind of shrugged their shoulders. The police, Mr. Parrott, his employers, they all decided Messeter must have moved on without telling anyone. The story was he'd led an adventurous life in America and Mexico before settling in Southampton. Maybe he just got bored and decided to head back to the States. But there's just one thing that doesn't quite fit this theory. If Messeter had gone off to start a new life, why did he leave his car behind? 
I mean, at the very least, you'd think he'd sell it to fund his travels. The wolf had bosses at the main office didn't seem too concerned about the disappearance of their Southampton agent. It takes him a couple months to get around replacing Messeter with Henry Passmore. It's kind of sad, really. No one seems to have missed him, except maybe his landlord. But when the body's discovered in the garage, the Southampton police realize that they found the man who went missing in October last year. Papers in the dead man's pocket confirm his identity as Vivian Messeter. A missing person case that no one cared about turns into a murder investigation. The circular wound in the middle of Messeter's forehead has the appearance of a bullet hole. After a superficial examination, the local police surgeon concludes that Messeter was shot in the head, but the body's taken to the mortuary for a more thorough post-mortem. As they investigate the crime scene, Southampton detectives focus on Messeter's car. They discover that the ignition is turned on but there's no fuel in the tank. It looks like the engine was left running until the gas ran out. Perhaps the killer did it to mask the sound of the gunshot. On the back seat of the car, the police find two important clues. A duplicate order book. You know, those notepads that used carbon paper to make copies of things like receipts and invoices. And a memorandum book pages have been torn out of both. The memorandum book contains a number of receipts. One is made out to a company called Cromer and Bartlett of Bold Street, Southampton. Another is signed by H.H. Galton. The receipt is dated October 30th, 1928. Could Galton be the murderer? He's certainly someone the police want to speak to. There's nothing written in the order book, but there are some loose sheets of carbon paper slipped in the back. Detectives can just about make out names and addresses on them. Cromer and Bartlett, again, as well as someone called Ben Baskerfield of Clayton Farm near Winchester and Ben Jarvis of Bassett Crescent, Southampton. The names mean nothing to the police, but you can bet they'll look into them. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. A vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground-up bones and oyster shells. Double-glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. 
The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. The following day, January the 11th, DCI Prothero arrives in Southampton with his trusty sergeant, Hugh Young. Tall and immaculately dressed, in spats and a starched shirt, John Prothero is a striking figure. He commands a room as soon as he walks into it. Prothero speaks with a refined, upper-class accent, which has led some of his colleagues to call him Gentleman John. It's the voice of an educated man, a varsity man. But though he's a great detective with a brilliant mind, Prothero didn't go to a university. And despite dressing and sounding like he's from a wealthy, privileged background, he isn't. He comes from a police family in Wales. His father rose through the ranks to become the chief constable of Anglesey. The image that Prothero has cultivated is a conscious decision. It gives him an air of authority, which enables him to tease information out of witnesses of all cases without ever having to raise his voice or lose his temper. And here's the thing, his understated approach gets results. Detective Prothero gets straight to work, reviewing the evidence that the Southampton police have found so far. Then, he and Sergeant Young visit the mortuary to see the body. Yeah, it looks like a gunshot wound, but there's just one problem. The police surgeon hasn't been able to find an exit wound, and there's no bullet inside the brain. Next, Prothero and his partner head to the scene of the crime. Obviously, the body's no longer there, so Detective Prothero has a volunteer pose as a corpse in the spot where Messiter was found. Sergeant Young even places his own hat on the ground where the dead man's trilby lay. Prothero takes in the scene. He notices that the crates stacked up on either side of the body were heavily bloodstained, with the blood reaching several feet high in places. To the experienced detective, the pattern of blood spatter doesn't fit with a gunshot wound to the head. It's just too much of it, too widely spread. It looks more like Messiter was bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. It seems the Southampton police may have got the cause of death wrong. As Prothero looks around, he wonders if there's anything else the local boys have missed. Search every nook and cranny, he orders. As usual, he doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't need to. All the officers there are hanging on his every word. Prothero wants everything cleared out of the garage. Every box, crate, packing case, and oil drum. As the search continues, more clues come to light. When officers move two oil drums away from the wall, they discover a screwed up piece of paper on the floor. Prothero puts on gloves to handle it, carefully teasing the crumpled paper open. On one side, there's a rent receipt for an address in Cranberry Avenue, Southampton. The receipt is signed, with thanks, Horn. 
He turns the paper over. There's some writing on the side too, but the paper's so heavily stained with oil and grime that it's impossible to read. Prothero hands it to Sergeant Young, telling him to send it to Mr. Mitchell. That's Ainsworth Mitchell, an analytical chemist the yard uses for cleaning up delicate pieces of evidence. Another oil drum is hauled out of the way, revealing a second piece of paper. The message written on this one is clearly legible. Mr. W. F. Thomas. I shall be at 42 Grove Street at 10 a.m., but not at noon. V. Messeter. 42 Grove Street is where they are now, the garage belonging to the Wolfhead Oil Company. But who's Mr. W. F. Thomas? Apparently, it's someone Messeter was planning to meet. Did the meeting take place? And if so, when? Could their appointment have been on the day of Messeter's death? Does this mean that the mysterious Mr. Thomas is Messeter's killer? At the very least, he could be an important witness who might have seen the killer. Now, right now, Detective Prothero has plenty of questions, but no answers. The scraps of paper could be vital clues, or they could have no relevance to the case at all. There's really no way of knowing. Then, the search uncovers the most dramatic clue yet. Behind more oil drums, they find a hammer. The officers who spot it call excitedly to DCI Prothero to take a look. As soon as he sees it, he understands their excitement. The head and shaft of the hammer are stained with blood. It looks like they found the murder weapon. Prothero was right. Vivian Messeter wasn't shot. He was beaten to death. The head of the hammer looks as though it's been filed down, almost to a point. And that would explain the bullet-sized hole in Messeter's forehead. But just because this looks like what happened, it doesn't mean it is. Prothero has to prove it. And to do so, He's going to need the help of an expert. Legendary home office pathologist Sir Bernard Spilsbury is the expert Prothero has in mind. Sir Bernard has helped solve some of the most famous British murder cases of the late 19th century and early 20th century. A pioneer in forensic pathology, his most famous case to date is that of the murderous Dr. Crippen. In 1910, Holly Harvey Crippen murdered his wife, Cora, and fled to America with his mistress disguised as his son. The case made front pages on both sides of the Atlantic. DCI Prothero puts in a request for Sir Bernard's assistance. In the meantime, he follows up a number of leads found at the garage. Remember the rent receipt from Cranberry Avenue? This takes Prothero to a lodging house run by a landlady called Mrs. Horn. She tells the detectives that she recently rented some rooms to a quiet couple called Mr. and Mrs. Thomas. The Thomases moved out on November 3rd, four days after Vivian Messeter was last seen alive. Thomas. Prothero remembers the name from the note that Messeter wrote to a Mr. W.F. Thomas, 
telling him when he would be at the Grove Street garage for an appointment. Could it be the same man? Seems likely. The Thomases left a forwarding address, care of Allied Transport Company, 38 High Road, Chiswick. Detective Prothero contacts Chiswick Police Station and asks them to check the couple out. The answer comes back that there's no such company as Allied Transport. There's not even a number 38 on the high road in Chiswick. For some reason, the Thomases lied about where they were heading next. Actually, Detective Prothero can think of a reason. It looks to him like they don't want to be found. He can't help wondering if that's got anything to do with Vivian Messiter's death. Prothero looks at the other names and addresses mentioned in the two books found in Messiter's car. A pattern begins to emerge. There's no such firm as Cromer and Bartlett. Oh, and Bold Street, Southampton, where they're supposed to be based? It simply doesn't exist. It's a similar story with Clayton Farm near Winchester. No such place. And when Sergeant Young makes inquiries in Bassett Crescent, Southampton, yeah, he can't find anyone called Ben Jervis living there. It looks like someone's been making sales receipts out to non-existing customers. Well, that's fraud. The question is, who's responsible? The deceased oil agent, Vivian Messiter? Or, well, who? The only name in Messiter's books that turns out to be genuine is H.H. Galton. Prothero tracks Galton down and asks him why his name is on a receipt in a dead man's garage. Galton explains that he ordered some oil from Wolfhead, which Messiter delivered in person. He claims he's never been to the Wolfhead Depot on Grove Street, and he doesn't even know where it is. Prothero's instinct is He's telling the truth. He begins to wonder if maybe the murderer deliberately left the receipt with Galton's name on it for the police to find. It's a fairly obvious, even clumsy attempt to throw suspicion onto an innocent man. The way Prothero sees it, Galton just doesn't have a motive for killing Messiter. His only connection with the dead man is that he once bought some oil from him. Prothero's next move is to search Messiter's apartment on Carlton Road in Southampton. Luckily, Mr. Parrott has kept it exactly as the tenant left it. Looking through Messiter's papers, the detective finds another link to the mysterious Mr. Thomas. It's a letter from Thomas to Messiter, dated October 23rd, replying to a job advert that Messiter had placed in the Southern Daily Echo. This would explain the other note they found from Messiter to Thomas arranging their appointment. There's one other thing. Thomas gives his address as Cranberry Avenue, proving that the W.F. Thomas, who arranged to meet Messiter, and the Mr. Thomas, who rented rooms from Mrs. Horn, are one and the same. This is confirmed when Prothero hears back from Mr. Mitchell, the chemist. He has succeeded in cleaning the oil from the back of the Cranberry Avenue rent receipt, revealing what was written there. 
it's another note for an order of oil signed by, you've guessed it, W.F. Thomas. There's no doubt now in Prothero's mind. W.F. Thomas, who arranged to meet Messeter at the garage, and Mr. Thomas, who lived at Cranberry Avenue, are the same person. This is significant because Prothero can now follow the trail from Cranberry Avenue to find the man he wants to talk to about Messeter's murder. He asks Mrs. Horn for a description of her former tenant and puts it in all the papers. Now, a written description of a suspect is never going to be as good as a photograph. But, fortunately, the elusive Mr. Thomas has a distinguishing feature that could help to identify him. A small scar on his face. Naturally, the newspaper picks up on this and the hunt for man with scar gets underway. Prothero also briefs the press on Thomas's wife. According to Mrs. Holm, her name is Lil, and she's got light auburn hair. The headline writers dub her golden-haired Lil. On January 15th, five days after Messiter's body was discovered, Sir Bernard Spilsbury arrives in Southampton to examine the body. Sir Bernard confirms DCI Prothero's suspicion. Cause of death was not a gunshot wound. As he notes in his report, the head of the large hammer used with great violence would account for injuries. Sir Bernard also examines the blood-stained hammer found in the garage. He finds an eyelash on the hammerhead and analyzes it under a microscope. Careful comparison with other eyelashes taken from the dead man confirm the eyelash is Messiter's. They found the murder weapon. Next, Detective Prothero calls in another expert, Detective Inspector Harry Batley, head of the fingerprint unit at Scotland Yard. Batley brings with him the files of 83 known criminals sharing the last name Thomas. If he finds any fingerprints on the hammer, he can compare them to those they have on record, but it's no good. Detective Batley examines the hammer closely for hours. He can't lift a single decent print, certainly nothing he can match with any other files. It's a setback for Prothero, but he doesn't give up hope. He shows the photographs from the 83 files to Mrs. Horn. It takes a while. She looks carefully at every mugshot, but she doesn't recognize any of them as her former tenant. It's another dead end. DCI Prothero's doing everything right, but nothing's working. The investigation is going nowhere. Then, unexpectedly, he gets a break. You could call it luck, but Prothero is one of those detectives who makes his own luck. Now, remember the description of W.S. Thomas that Prothero released? When police in Wiltshire see it, they get in touch, saying they're also looking for a man with a scar on his face, a man who's also called W.F. Thomas, who stole 130 pounds from his employer. Gotta be the same guy. The Wiltshire police share everything they have on their Mr. Thomas. 
He started working for a building contractor in downtown near Salisbury on November the 3rd, 1928. The same day Mr. and Mrs. Thomas left their lodgings on Cranberry Avenue, Southampton. There's another odd coincidence. This W.F. Thomas told his new boss that his previous employer was the Allied Transport Road Association of Bold Street, Southampton. Remember the forwarding address that Thomas has left with Mrs. Horn? It mentioned the Allied Transport Company. It's a similar enough name to make Prothero suspicious, especially as the Allied Transport Company was supposed to be in Chiswick, not Southampton. And he hasn't forgotten that when the police checked it out, they found there was no such company. There's another thing that just doesn't add up. Bold Street, Southampton was the address on a fraudulent receipt for a company called Cromer and Bartlett, but there was no Cromer and Bartlett and no Bold Street. It looks like W.F. Thomas is the one who made out the fake sales receipts found in the Wolfhead garage, though he doesn't seem to have much imagination. Just recycling names and addresses that he's already used. Detectives investigating the downtown theft follow up a lead which takes them to another landlady who had a couple called Mr. and Mrs. Thomas lodging with her. In their now vacated room, the police find a scrap of paper bearing the initials A and RS and an address, 85 London Road, Manchester. A detective from Manchester confirms the existence of a company called Auto and Radio Services on London Road. He also tells Prothero, we're looking for a man named Podmore who used to work for them. His picture was in the Police Gazette. And when DCI Prothero shows this picture to Mrs. Horn in Southampton, she confirms what the detectives already suspect. Her former tenant, the quiet Mr. Thomas, and wanted man, William Henry Podmore are the same person. Podmore is Thomas. Could he also be Vivian Messiter's murderer? It turns out that William Henry Podmore is a career criminal. Prothero sends for his police file. It makes for interesting reading. Born in Stoke-on-Trent in 1900, Podmore's first brush with the law came at the age of 11, when he was arrested for breaking and entering. This was the start of a pattern of offending that included stealing a cash box, desertion from the army, larceny, bicycle theft, the list goes on. He was married in 1925, but under a fake name. Yeah, that's right. When he signed the register, he called himself Franklin Leno Nichols. After his marriage, Podmore committed a series of frauds on local tradespeople. This fits with the grift he was likely working on Vivian Messeter, passing off fake sales receipts and claiming the commission. Before the business with Messeter in Southampton, his most recent crime was the theft of a car from his employers, auto and radio services, which is why the Manchester police are after him. DCI Prothero's murder inquiry has turned into a major multi-force investigation involving officers from Hampshire, Wilshire, Staffordshire, Manchester, and London. 
All these separate forces pool their resources and share intelligence with one aim, to find Podmore. They start to get results. The team learns that Podmore, AKA Nichols, has abandoned his wife and child and hooked up with a new girlfriend called Lil Hamilton. At last, they've got a real name for golden-haired Lil. Until recently, the couple were posing as a man and wife, using the last name Thomas. They were the same Mr. and Mrs. Thomas who lived at Cranberry Avenue in Southampton at the time of Vivian Messiter's murder. Further inquiries reveal they've now gone their separate ways. Prothero sends detectives to put pressure on Lil Hamilton, who's back living with her parents in Stoke-on-Trent. Maybe she and Podmore didn't exactly part on friendly terms, or maybe she's worried about being arrested as an accomplice to the murder. Either way, it doesn't take too much to get Lil to talk. She's seen Podmore's pictures in the papers. She knows why the police are looking for him, and she tells him where to find him. The Leicester Hotel in Vauxhall Bridge, London. A couple of Prothero's colleagues from Scotland Yard make a beeline for the hotel. They find Podmore lying low in his room. The detectives throw the suspect in a flying squad car and take him straight down to Southampton. Finally, Detective Prothero comes face to face with a man he's been hunting. The two men size each other up across the table in a police interview room. Podmore's expression is confident, his body language cocky. There's a slight snarl of contempt on his lips. He's pretty sure the police have got nothing on him, nothing that can tie him to the murder of Vivian Messiter anyway. Prothero gives nothing away. He maintains his polite Gentleman John exterior, pulling his handcuffs out a little and brushing a speck from his shoulder. Speaking in his quiet voice and never losing his composure, he questions Podmore about his recent movements. Podmore admits that he's wanted for theft in Manchester and downtown. That's the reason he's been living under an alias. He also admits that he knows Messiter, says he's worked with him briefly as a sub-agent, selling oil farmers and garage owners. The last time he saw Messiter alive was October 30th, 1928, at the Wolfhead Garage. He claims there was another man there, someone called Maxton or Baxton. He can't remember the name exactly. Actually, the name he's trying to remember is Galton. That was the name that the man left in the memorandum book for the police to find. At one point, he seems to realize that he's made a mistake and becomes very upset, practically sobbing as his statement is read back to him. It's odd, suspicious behavior, but it doesn't prove Podmore is a murderer. Fortunately for Prothero and his team, Podmore isn't going anywhere. He's held in custody for the crimes in Manchester and downtown that he's already admitted to. This gives Prothero more time to look for the evidence that'll tie Podmore to Vivian Messiter's murder. The detective starts with the murder weapon. He circulates a description of the hammer in the papers. It's a distinctive item made in France. Not only that, 
It's been modified in an unusual way. Remember? The head was filed down. Someone might recognize it. The tactic pays off. A Southampton-based car mechanic called Marsh comes forward saying that the hammer was his. He was at work in his garage on October 29, 1928, when a man with a scar on his face approached him and asked him to borrow a hammer. Marsh thought the other guy was a fellow mechanic, so he agreed. He never saw the hammer again, or the man again. Could this individual be Podmore? Detective Prothero arranges a lineup to find out. Mr. Marsh walks slowly up and down the line several times, examining each face carefully. But at the end of the exercise, turns to DCI Prothero and shakes his head. For whatever reason, Marsh fails to ID Podmore. It's frustrating, but understandable. Approximately two and a half months have passed since the unknown man came into his garage to borrow the hammer. Could you recall the face of a stranger you had a brief conversation with two months ago? Especially if the conversation lasted less than a minute and you were busy at the time trying to repair a faulty carburetor. If you had no reason to be suspicious of the other person, you probably wouldn't give the incident a second thought. Podmore breathes a sigh of relief, but he's not off the hook completely. At the end of January, he starts a six-month sentence for the car theft in Manchester. With Podmore in prison, DCI Prothero returns to London, but he hasn't given up the Southampton case. He's determined to prove that William Henry Podmore killed Vivian Messeter. He takes all the evidence he has and places it in the murder room at Scotland Yard. Prothero carefully examines each item, searching for anything he might have missed. He tirelessly goes over the fine details of the case with Sergeant Young, looking at them from every conceivable angle, questioning every assumption, reviewing every witness statement. Whichever way they look at it, Podmore has to be the killer. He had the opportunity as an employee of Wolfhead. He could come and go frequently to the garage. In fact, Podmore has already admitted he was there on October 30th, the last day Messeter was seen alive. He had the means, the bloodstained hammer that was found in the garage. They can place Podmore at the garage where the hammer was found, which means he had access to it. They don't need the mechanic, Marsh, to ID him. Most of all, the detectives are convinced that Podmore had the motive. They believe he'd been swindling Messeter out of the commission on non-existent oil sales. Messeter must have found out and confronted him with the evidence of his fraud. There'd been an argument, which quickly escalated into violence. Podmore knew that the police were after him for other crimes. If this latest fraud was added to his rap sheet, he's going away for a long time. So he reached for the hammer and brought it down, smack in the middle of his boss's forehead. The only problem for Prothero and Young is that they haven't proven conclusively that Podmore was the one committing fraud. They found evidence of fake receipts made out to fictitious companies, but nothing with the name Podmore 
or Thomas on it. The paper trail has a tantalizing gap in it. Detective Prothero looks again at the memorandum book found in Messiter's car, and he has an idea. He takes the book over to the window, open to the first empty page after all the torn out receipts. The slanting sunlight falls across the paper. Detective Prothero can just about make out an impression of writing from the receipt that once lay on top of this page. And he's pretty sure he can read what's written there. But just to be sure, he has it photographed by an expert forensic photographer. When the image comes back, the message is clear. October 28, 1928. Received Wolf Head Oil Company commission on Cromer and Bartlett. Two shillings and one sixpence. WFT. All right, now, remember, there's no such company as Cromer and Bartlett, so this is a provable act of fraud. And for the first time, they can link a bogus receipt to W.F. Thomas, a name Podmore has already admitted to using. Not only that, the receipt is dated a few days before Messeter was last seen alive. It could easily have provided the trigger to their fatal argument. Prothero believes he's done enough to prove his case. His superiors aren't too sure. They want more, ideally a confession, but the experienced detective knows that Podmore will never confess to him. That may be true, but like a lot of killers before and after him, Podmore can't resist talking about his crime to somebody. While he's serving a second six-month sentence for the theft in downtown, Podmore gets friendly with a fellow convict called Cummings. Maybe he's trying to impress Cummings, or maybe Messiter's death is weighing on his conscience. He tells Cummings all about the murder in a garage in Southampton, and he just can't resist saying that he was the one who did it. In October 1929, approximately a year after Vivian Messiter first went missing, Detective Prothero receives a phone call from the governor of Wandsworth Prison. There's a convict there who wants to talk to him. Prothero sits down with Cummings, who makes a full statement revealing everything Podmore told him. When Podmore gets out of prison this time, detectives Prothero and Young are waiting for him, ready to snap the handcuffs on him one more time. Podmore is tried for murder at Winchester Assizes in March 1930. Aside from the prison cell confession, most of the evidence against him is highly circumstantial, but there's a lot of it, and it all fits together like a chain. Podmore is found guilty on April 22, 1930. He's hanged for the murder of Vivian Messeter. John Prothero continues to work as a Scotland Yard detective for a few more years before being promoted to superintendent in 1932. He retires from the Metropolitan Police Force in 1934. Looking back on his career, the Western Mail described his contribution to solving the Messeter case with the following words. The detection of that crime was regarded as one of the finest pieces of work ever known in police circles. 
Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. It's 1992 and we're in California. When three members of the Yule family are found shot to death in their Fresno home, the news is met with shock. Fresno is a quiet community with low crime rates. A triple homicide is unheard of. Veteran detective John Souza and his partner Chris Curtis are assigned to the case. Though the killers tried to make the scene look like a robbery, Susan knows better. It's been staged to draw police away from the real motive. But what is it? Why would someone target this well-liked family? Well, it turns out that Dana Yule was ruthless in business and a very rich man. There could be as many as eight million reasons why the Yules were targeted. Join us next time on Detectives Don't Sleep for Operation Three Stooges.